Welcome to Bike Talk, streaming in Southern California at KPFK, Western Massachusetts at Valley Free Radio, WMBR in Cambridge, and worldwide at biketalk.org. My name is Lindsay Sturman, and I'm here today with the founder of Bike Talk, Nick Richert, and Taylor Nichols, another co-host. And each of these guys have done a really great interview. Um, Taylor, so you interviewed Emily Badger from the New York Times, who wrote this kind of somewhat viral article in the Upshot. Tell us about it. It's kind of funny. I was nervous talking to her. <laughs> you know, she's a, a big New York Times journalist. Um, it was really wonderful. She wrote an article last Sunday called the exceptionally American problem of rising roadway deaths. And I asked her what prompted her to write it. And she said um, she she lives in Washington, D.C. and writes for The New York Times. She said that more Foreign Service agents have died through roadway violence and traffic violence this last year than have died serving overseas. And that made her dig into this problem of, of how come other industrial nations have had traffic and roadway deaths go down in the last 20 years, but in America, it's going up. And so she wrote this really, really wonderful article, and it has created a real stir online. So we got her to come on Bike Talk, and and she was great. She talked all about the article, why she wrote it, and why America is dealing with a lot of these problems. And and Nick, you talked to Miriam Pinsky, um, who wrote an op-ed in the San Francisco Chronicle. Yeah, she just asked the question why we suspend driver's licenses for failure to pay child support and we don't do it for reckless driving. Which is crazy to me. Are you saying that we don't suspend driver's license for like a hit and run or for uh, a reckless driving ticket or? I don't know the actual rates of suspension, but I do know that it's popularly believed that you can do almost anything dangerous in a car without much risk of getting your driver's license suspended, but they do use it for non-driving related violations having nothing to do with driving like child support payment. And, and so Miriam Pinsky talked about how it affects low income drivers to have their their license taken away. Every part of this is insane. And the fact that we don't take, you know, reckless driving seriously, we don't take speeding seriously. I mean, the number of deaths, it's like, it just it reminds me of tobacco, like people just in denial of what is happening to our streets, right. our children, our, our, our quality of life. And that the simplest thing, I mean, scooters have speed governors. You're not allowed to speed on a scooter. One DUI, why don't you have a speed governor? The EU requires them. It's such a simple fix to this, you know, what's happening in our streets. Or DUI, lose your license. I mean, just take it. Right. That might be unpopular for some reason. Yeah. Well, we certainly want people people to pay um, child support. I guess that's why they do that. The problem is we are forced to drive cars. So when you take away you know, especially a low-income person's driver's license, they're no longer able to earn a living to pay child support. So I think that's the catch-22 there. Yeah, it's no, a card it's dependency. And then we have Tafari Bain, Chief Strategist of Ciclovia, and some sounds from Last Critical Mass. Great. Today we have Emily Badger uh, as our guest, and, and she's here because she just wrote an article called The, the Exceptionally American Problem of Rising Roadway Deaths. And that's something that we talk about a lot on Bike Talk because we often preach to the choir. But Emily, you wrote the article for the New York Times, and I think it was on the front page. I mean, I I read it online and and I was just like, oh, my God, the New York Times is talking about this. So, Emily Badger, uh, welcome to Bike Talk. Yeah, thank you for having me. What what got you uh, to write the article? 
And then maybe, because I want the, the audience to go to the Times to read the article, but can you also then, you know, give us a little bit of breakdown of what the article said? Sure. So um, I'm I'm based in Washington, D.C., not New York, and uh, I am a bike commuter myself. You know, I think as is true for a lot of writers, the things that strike me as needing to be written about are things that I see in my my own life. And a couple of hours ago, earlier this morning, walking back from taking my five-year-old to school, uh, I was walking down a road where uh, there was a car that was, you know, just illegally speeding through and kind of blowing through red lights and, you know, right past little children who are on their way to school on on a street that's had, you know, a hit and run the other day. And I mean, it's just it's just in the air that we breathe around right. us. Um, right. You know, the casual conversations I have with my neighbors are constantly about, um, you know, kind of drivers behaving badly in ways that they have felt unsafe. Uh, and I've certainly experienced that myself as a cyclist. Um, but the particular article uh, that we published in the Times earlier this week was really sort of inspired by um, by the death of a woman named Sarah Langenkamp who uh, was a foreign service officer who had actually recently returned to the United States from Poland, uh, where she had been evacuated. She had been serving in Ukraine with her husband, also a foreign service wow. officer. And they had you know, been relocated to Poland earlier uh, this year when the war looked imminent. And um, you know, here, here is this sort of distinguished woman who has, you know, served in lots of different parts of the world and had recently been, you know, sort of right in the middle of a war zone. And she comes back to the United States and is killed, uh, hit by uh, a large semi-truck. Uh, she was riding in a bike lane in suburban Bethesda uh, outside of Washington uh, on her way home from her son's elementary school. It is a terrible tragedy every time someone is hit by a car, uh, you right. know, sort of regardless of your mode of transportation. But but there was this, you know, just particularly kind of terrible irony to her death, uh, which made it, you know, sort of quite prominent in the community of cyclists around the Washington, D.C. area. So, you know, if, if you were a cyclist around here, you probably heard about this case. Right. Um, but but the thing that that really, you know, kind of put it over the top for me in, in, you know, becoming something that I couldn't stop thinking about was that Sarah Langenkamp was actually, she died in late August. She was actually the third foreign service officer at the State Department who had died this year uh, by being hit by a vehicle while either walking or biking in the Washington wow. area. Uh, you know, there, there was another woman who was biking uh, near the State Department, um, you know, just maybe six weeks earlier. And, and then there was a man, a retired Foreign Service officer who was still working on contract for the State Department, who was hit while walking close to the uh, State Department. And, and so, you know, out of this sort of terrible set of coincidences of all these people who work at the State Department, you know, emerged this kind of terrible little factoid I learned, which is that more foreign service officers at, at the U.S. State Department 
have died in traffic fatalities in the Washington, D.C. area than have died serving anywhere in the world this year. Um, You know, here's this here's this group of people who go around the world and put themselves in into danger zones. Yeah. Yeah. They put themselves in dangerous positions and in kind of unfamiliar situations who kind of, you know, embrace all kinds of environments who, you know, intentionally do the work of, you know, trying to teach other parts of the world how to, you know, build, build better systems and kind of embrace policy ideas that are successful in the United States. And, and, and then, you know, people in this community are coming back to the United States and they are dying as a result of what is an abject policy failure on the part of the American government. When I learned about that one little fact that more of these foreign service officers were dying in, in roads in DC than overseas, I thought, oh, maybe my writing about that is a way of getting my readers to think differently about this problem that's just kind of ever present in the background. And, um, you know, we sort of take for granted that there's going to be some fatality associated with roadways. We don't treat it like a particularly problematic, um, you know, pandemic or- Until uh, it's your child or your mother or- Yeah, exactly, exactly. And so I thought, you know, here's, here's a sort of random little window into looking at this problem that might kind of jar a lot of people into looking at it differently. And because I was particularly interested in the perspective of these people in the foreign service who, you know, sort of go out into the world and look at how other parts of the world do things and then come back to the United States and have sort of new eyes looking at how we do things in America. I really wanted to look at how road fatalities in America compare to other countries. And, um, you know, when you look at that data, I'm, I'm sure that many of your listeners are familiar with this pattern. Uh, the United States ranks terribly. Uh, You know, if you compare the United States to other comparably developed countries, you know, we rank very near the bottom in road deaths per capita. It's not just that we rank near the bottom, it's that there's been this long running trend that's 25 years in the making of road fatalities declining around the world. And, And we sort of followed that trend for a while. And over the last decade, we really kind of diverged from all of our peer countries. Their roads continued to get safer and and our improvements kind of leveled off and then actually fatalities started rising again the last couple of years and then this really weird thing happened during the pandemic which right. was that you know vehicle travel declined everywhere in the world as people were entering into lockdowns as you would expect road fatalities broadly declined across the world in 2020 right. because as fewer people are driving there's few crashes there were fewer people getting hit and that is not what happened in the united states i mean we are we have been an outlier for a while, but we were a really weird outlier during the pandemic because right. vehicle miles traveled declined in the U.S. as well. But actually, our fatalities went up about 5% from 2019 to 2020, and they went up again uh, in 2021. Right. Um, and so they're just, you know, if you if you were thinking about an international context, it really makes you ask different questions about what are we doing wrong here? Because a lot of the things that we might attribute the problem to are things that other countries deal with too. Right, right. You even say in the article, other other countries have drunk drivers and other countries have drivers on their telephones. Yeah, other countries deal with other countries dealt with the pandemic. I mean, it's right. it's been quite common for 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 people, you know, including um, government officials, to say, well, you know, that the pandemic just did something crazy to drivers and made them act really badly. And it's like, okay, well, we're not the only country that experienced a global pandemic. Right. Um, but there is something about, you know, we're not the only country where 
uh, people were dealing with the sort of psychological effects of isolation and depression and just all of the sort of frustration that came out of the pandemic. And so you, you can't attribute our rise in road fatalities to these sort of human emotions that surely, you know, people in France were experiencing those people in Japan were experiencing right. those too. What do you think it is then? A significant part of the answer has to do with the fact that, I mean, we we have always had this sort of car-centric culture in the United States, and we have had an infrastructure built out of that culture that reflects that culture. So, you know, we, we build transportation infrastructure in the United States for the primary purpose of moving people by vehicles as quickly as possible. Right. The goal is not move people by any means you know necessary or, or even safely <laughs> yeah it's the goal is not move people safely the goal is not give people choices for how to move right. around um you know the goal is not whatever whatever mode people choose help them do it safely it is purely um you know how do we move cars quickly and how do we remove things that are encumbrances on cars moving quickly right making roads wider and making yeah. lanes wider and Right, right. And I mean, it's just, you know, it's the, those are the big obvious things, but it, you know, every tiny little detail of how we design transportation has this idea baked into it. I mean, when, when cities talk about timing the signals at intersections in order to efficiently move traffic, like they're never referring to like, what is the appropriate timing of a red light to enable a pedestrian to cross the street? Across. They're talking about like, how do we enable cars to move through dense urban environments right. as if they were on highways? Right. If a community is talking about, can we install a bike lane? It becomes a calculus about, well, do we really want to take that roadway or that one lane away from car traffic? You know, more people are using cars than are using bikes. So, you know, it makes more sense to devote our transportation to those people. So I think there's this kind of, very, very long running feedback loop between the infrastructure that we build and the culture that it that it is reflecting and, right. and that it sort of reinforces. Right. And, um, you know, then then we get to the pandemic. And I mean, I think a lot about I, I saw this very plainly in Washington, D.C., and I'm sure a lot of your listeners have seen it in their communities, too. When we went into lockdown during the pandemic and streets really emptied in communities all over the country, I, you know, I, I think it sort of it made it very plain to see exactly what our roadways looked like, like yeah. to like the, the infrastructure that we had built was plainly visible to us when you took all the people in the cars off of it. Right. And and what we had built was these, you know, incredibly wide roads, including in very dense urban environments. And it was absolutely no wonder that the people who were driving then, you know, felt like they could drive 50 miles an hour through, you know, an area where you should be driving 25 miles an hour. Yeah. I mean, the 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 infrastructure tells people you have permission to behave that way because, right. it, you know, people, as people are driving, they intuit how they should use infrastructure, right? right. And, and if you have a narrow road, which is clearly being shared with other uses and the lane is narrower and there's only, you know, two lanes of traffic um, and there's a bike lane and there's a lane of parked cars and there's a sidewalk and there's people on the sidewalk and there's shops and stuff and there's 
trees and a tree canopy. Like you, you just and there's life, it. life on the street is what you're yeah. talking about. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you just sort of intuit as a driver on that road, I shouldn't drive 50 miles an hour here. Right. And the opposite is true on, you know, a four lane wide road that has, um, you know, no parked cars on it, no, you know, pedestrian or cycling infrastructure, nothing noteworthy for you to look at out the window as you're driving through the community. At the end of the day, it, it was still a story of our infrastructure and our right. culture during the pandemic. Right. It just, you know, in, I, I think about it a lot in that the pandemic, the pandemic made clear so many different aspects of American life that were broken or not working or unequal. Right. Um, you know, I think a lot of people were thinking early in the pandemic, oh, it's going to fundamentally change American life in all these ways. And actually a lot of what the pandemic did was just sort of make clearer to us things that were already fundamentally true about American right. life. Right. And that's how I think about this question of infrastructure too. Like, like it, you know, it it's sort of like the, the pandemic was this moment of opportunity to double down on all of the things that are wrong with the transportation right. system we have. Right. Right. And I would even posit that those those four lane roads that you were talking about are actually seven lanes when you count, you know, two lanes of parking and a and a left left turn lane. And then, we, you know, when the you know, the, one of the things about the pandemic also that we started talking a lot about was people lining up for food in SUVs. So mm -hmm. they're 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 paying, you know, a, a huge amount of money, you know, not only to buy the SUV and, and to put gas in it and to insure it. Uh, but then they don't have money actually for 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 food during the pandemic. So that was also a sign of, of yeah. how we've how we've gone gone wrong. What what has the reaction been? Um, um, have there been a lot of comments? Has there been some pushback in the LA in, in the in the New York Times? Yeah, the um, this story had insane engagement in I'm sure. the sheer number of people who commented on it and the um the emails that i've gotten about it um you know sort of the people talking about it on social media um so so i think it really touched a nerve with a lot of people but 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 it didn't touch the same nerve with everybody i mean right. you know there there were people who just feel sort of like i do like deeply frustrated on a daily basis in your routine with what what feels like reckless uh driving around yeah. you uh, who and really selfish related, driving, yeah. Yeah, yeah, who really related to the piece. But but then, you know, I also heard from uh, from people who said, well, you know, the, the real issue here is um, cyclists need to wear reflective clothing. Or <laughs> the real issue here is uh, police need to better enforce people who run red lights. Or the real issue here is that, um, you know, we need to, to double down on trying to get to our autonomous future because that will solve the problem. Right. Um, and so, so, so I think people feel very strongly about this topic, but they also... I think people have different, very different ideas about what it is that's really going on here and what we should focus on in order to solve it. Right, right. Will you do some more articles on this? Lots of times there's a there's a series of articles on one. Yeah, topic. there is a sort of deep well here of things to explore that are all connected to each other. Yeah, yeah. You know, you you said earlier that these rising deaths in America are the result of of abject policy failure on the part of the U.S. government. You know why? Why can't our? I I just got back from um, Barcelona and Paris and Amsterdam, and all of those cities have really made great strides in changing the infrastructure of the road. 
And what I noticed is it really changed the, the communities around those streets. Uh, um, it, it made them a little quieter. It made them a little, little calmer, a little more relaxed, um, more life on the street. I, I've spent a fair amount of time in, in Barcelona over the years and, and it's changing and it's, it's, it's becoming much more, um, you know, people friendly and it already was, you know, extremely people friendly. Um, so, so why is it that, that the U.S. can't um, get on the same page as the rest of the world? Part of it is that we're living with choices that have been made over decades. Oh, yeah, um, only like four or five, though, really, right? I mean, well, yes, yes, yes. Right. It's not sort of, you know, the entire history of, of the United States. But, but the built environment, when you build it, lasts for a really long time. Right. And even if there were a sort of sea change in political will to do something about this, it, it would not be easy overnight to retrofit the built environment that we have. But that said, I, I don't think the political will is there. Right. Um, you know, that would be sort of even if, if, if we did have political will, but I don't think for the most part that, that we do. I do think that there, there are many people in the current Biden administration, including Transportation Secretary Buttigieg, who really believe in complete streets and public transit and embracing sort of other modes of transportation. Have, uh, have, have you been able to um, talk with him or not? I haven't talked with him since he ran for president oh. uh, in his current job, um, but, but I've talked to a number of other people in the Department of Transportation. And, you know, I think it's quite clear in a lot of his public facing comments and interviews. And, yeah. and I know from, from his time, um, as the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, you know, when, when he was a local official who like literally had to make decisions about allocating road space and how right. to spend, you know, transportation dollars that trickle down to you, you know, he did a lot of this work there trying to do road diets, narrowing roads and building more bike infrastructure. Um, so I think that he's a true believer about this stuff. And I think that there are a lot of people in the Biden administration who are true believers about it. But the reality is that I think a big part of the reason why this problem continues to persist and we continue to put up with it is it's not just sort of inertia there. It's not just sort of like the, the absence of people doing something about it. it it's also about the presence of people actively opposing. The oh yeah, definitely. We, you know, the, the bike lash we call yeah, that. Yeah. And it, and it plays out at these incredibly micro levels at the block level in communities yeah. all over the country where, you know, this is plays out in my neighborhood as well. Um, yeah. The neighbors don't want to lose a lane of travel for a bike lane. Um, the businesses think that they don't want to lose a lane of parking for, you know, a wider sidewalk or creating something more like a complete street. It is true at the end of the day that what we are talking about here is reallocating scarce resources, right? I mean, the right. roadways in the built environment in general, urban land is scarce. And right. we're talking yeah. about, you know, telling, telling people who have had a monopoly on it, car users, that you have to share more of it. And, and it's not so simple as to say like one group of people is car users and one group of people is these other modes, because in reality, you know, anyone who drives a car is a pedestrian for the amount of time it takes you to get in and out of your car. Right. And, you know, I'm I'm a bike commuter and I'm also a car owner and I'm also a pedestrian. And I think that's true of, you know, a not in of most of us, right, right? Share of people. But we are talking about, I mean, no politician wants to say this, but we are talking about taking something away from one group in order to, you know, sort of build something that is in the greater good. Right. And any 
local politician will tell you that, you know, sort of things related to streets and traffic and parking are just, they just drive people crazy. And they make your life miserable if you're an elected official. It is hard to, I mean, there's not just the problem of like, oh, we need to get money in order to do this, but but you also need to get sort of buy-in to do these things. And that's that's really hard to do. You know, most of our audiences are, you know, we're we're preaching to the choir. But when you write and you know, especially on the front page, you know, a lot of people are 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 reading that. And and I have found that once you open someone's eyes to these issues like oh my god you know there there doesn't have to be so many parked cars on our street there doesn't have to be you know cars don't need to go you know 40 miles an hour down fairfax the little street you know or or the main street near near my house or i can't sit at starbucks outside and have a coffee because it's so loud you know once you open people's eyes that they start to go oh yeah you're right and they realize when they go on vacation, they don't go to car centric places, right, right. people walking places and people right. seeing places. So yeah. that's why I think your article was was so, so important. And I hope you do follow it up with with more. And I'd love you to get Pete, Pete Buttigieg and ask him some of these kinds of questions, because you wrote another article uh, that, I, that I want to talk about called um, the, the House Puts Transportation in the in the Partisan Crossfire. And, you know, I want to bring that back a little bit to Pete Buttigieg, because now there's this whole thing that you're you're gay if you're riding a bike or, you know, riding a bike is not masculine and you have to, you know, drive a muscle car or something like that. And I know that that article was written a while ago, but you did did update it recently. And I wonder if you talk about that a little bit about the partisan divide between traffic and and traffic calming issues and and solutions. Yeah, it's primarily an issue at the federal level. And I think there's something very corrosive about the idea that funding highways is is sort of a Republican priority and funding all of the other stuff, meaning transit, um, bike, pedestrian infrastructure is a sort of Democratic priority. Right. This is true of a lot of things, you know, outside of transportation as well, where where there's kind of this, the culture war has kind of mapped partisanship onto you know, whatever the topic is in a way that makes it a lot harder to resolve that with with policy solutions to things. That has been a really unfortunate impediment in Washington, I think, to, you know, sort of fundamentally rethinking the balance of federal transportation investment, you know, the the overwhelming share of it goes to highways, Uh, a very tiny share of it goes to transit and and other kinds of infrastructure. And it's true that, that once you, once you say only the other side of the aisle is interested in these things, that it just makes it really easy for politicians to oppose it or reject it or sort of paint it as like, you know, oh, it's this elite coastal thing that people want to ride bikes. And I have felt that that is kind of less prominent in Congress lately than you know, sort of earlier in the Trump administration or, or even in previous administrations. Right. But it's something that people who are working in this space, it's something that they need to be sort of on guard against and sort of not allow this idea to become entrenched that this is like a red blue thing. Because, right. Right. Um, because it's not really, you know, when you travel to to Louisville or, or uh, Pittsburgh and some of those cities, they're they're making great strides. 
you know, creating alternate forms of transportation to be safe and, and giving mm-hmm. them space and all that. Louisville's kind of a red, well, it's a blue city in a red state, put it that way. Yeah. But even in my neighborhood, I, I live in West Hollywood and I imagine most of my neighbors are all are all Democrats. But we had some traffic calming infrastructure put in right right near my house. And there was such bike lash to it. That oh yeah, yeah. I mean, at the, at the very, at the most local level, there's there's no relevant partisan pattern to this at all. I mean, right. sort of people who, people not wanting change is not Republican or Democratic. Right. It's sort of right. you know American or right. human even. Right. That, um, you know, human. I think definitely. Yeah. 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 There's a great stat I heard one time that the difference in traffic moving smoothly on a road and then it being a traffic jam is only like three percent of the amount of cars. And yeah, I think if that's, if that's something we could get out there, you know, we're not trying to take all the cars off the road. We just yeah. want to take enough cars off the road so that the traffic moves smoothly for those who choose to drive, but is still safe for those who choose to walk or bike or scoot or. Yeah. I mean, that's sort of consistent with this idea that I have frequently heard over the years from, from bike advocates that like, if, if you are a driver and you're not interested in biking yourself, um, you should thank every cyclist you see because they are not in a car. Like right. if you feel that they are a nuisance to you in a bike, they would be much more of a nuisance to you if they were adding to the car traffic. And that's just sort of like a cultural idea that's not widely understood or embraced in America, that like building this other kind of infrastructure, giving people, including public transit, giving people more options for how to get around benefits everybody, including people who, for whatever reason, are going to continue to drive a car. Right, right. And you even talk about in in one of your articles that you know, public transit and mass transit is, is not necessarily light rail or Amtrak. It's the van that picks up people you know, to go to the the shelter or, you know, what you know, whatever the 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 public transportation might be. It's not just subways. Yeah. It, or or it's I mean bus service, it's buses. It's right for for the vast majority of the country, transit means buses. It doesn't right. mean a subway system like in New York or Washington. Right. And it could even be a, a carpool. I mean, you 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 say in one article, I think that uh, one of the problems is there's just one person in every car right. rather than, you know, there's, so there's all these empty seats in the car. And in L.A., a lot of those cars are huge SUVs. So there's not three empty seats. There's, you know, seven empty seats. Oh, that's a really great point. Yeah. Yeah. Terrible inefficiency in that. And uh, yeah, it's inefficient in many ways, including at a time when gas is for five, six dollars a gallon. Right. And you didn't talk at all about climate, I don't think, in the article and about, you know, this is also an, an area where we really need to make some changes there. So. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the part of the reason why it's so frustrating that, you know, a lot of communities are not adapting their infrastructure faster is that, you know, there's 15 different reasons to do this. I mean, the, in the piece I recently wrote, I focused on one of them, which is reducing road fatalities. Right. but. You know, this is with with a lot of with a lot of things that we choose to do in urban environments, you know, there's trade-offs. You're you're having to sort of, you know, take something away from one group to give something to another group, or you're having to prioritize, you know, one thing less in order to prioritize something else more. But trying to build safer and kind of more inclusive transportation systems that give people more options is just like a no-brainer of a policy goal that serves like 10 other things that you want, you know, including 
economic development and sort of lifting up the ability of lower income people to access jobs and giving people, you know, more choice of the kinds of neighborhoods that they could access or the schools their children could access or, um, yeah, or, you know, reducing uh, greenhouse gas emissions. I mean, like all of these things are served right. by this one, this one thing that we were talking about. And in that right. way, it's a no brainer. I would, I would hate to think that the woman who you open your article about who died after dropping her child off at school had been hit on the way to school. She was actually hit on her way home from an open house shortly before the school year had started. So right. her children were were thankfully not with her. Not, but, not with her, right. Yeah, but, but certainly a sort of terrible case of, uh, you know, a, a child seeing she had two sons, her sons, you know, seeing their mom in the morning and not knowing that they wouldn't ever see her again. Right. When I was a child, um, I was with my mom. She she taught at Michigan State University and she got hit by a bicycle. And that was was traumatic enough. But because it was a bicycle and not a car, she wasn't injured very badly. So luckily, she got hit by a bike and not a and not a car. Emily Badger uh, writes about cities, urban planning and trans transportation. You used to write for The Washington Post. Now you're with the New York Times. Thank you so much for taking the time and being on Bike Talk. I really enjoyed uh, talking to you. I really enjoyed reading your article. If you could give the audience how to find the article and how to find more about you. I write for a part of the Times called The Upshot, which is a corner of the paper where we do a lot of kind of data journalism in particular. You can find this article and other things I have written at The Upshot at the New York Times. And I am on Twitter at Emily M. Badger. And I am not really on social media anywhere else. <laughs> okay. That is enough for me. That's perfect. Emily, thanks a lot. Yeah, thank you for having the conversation. That was Taylor Nichols with Emily Badger on her New York Times article, The Exceptionally American Problem of Rising Roadway Deaths. You're still listening to Bike Talk. I'm with Miriam Pinsky, who wrote an article about driver's license suspensions for child support delinquency or things that don't relate to traffic violations for the San Francisco Chronicle. You've also studied the history of the driver's license. Yes. I'm interested in why the driver's license is used for so much beyond just driving. I don't really drive, but just this past weekend, I had to find my driver's license to apply for a credit card. And mm -hmm. a friend of mine this past weekend had trouble booking a hotel room because he'd lost his driver's license. So all of these small ways that the license shows up in unexpected ways, not related to driving. I guess I was just curious about how that came to happen and why we do revoke licenses for things like child support delinquency, but not for breaking traffic rules all the time. So I guess there's two issues intertangled here. One is that the driver's license is so important and how it came to be so important and used to enforce all kinds of things that have nothing to do with driving. And the second one is why isn't it used to enforce reckless driving violations on the road? The history of the license, it starts with the beginning of the car. And actually, why don't we step back? And I think listeners of your podcast are probably interested in how the bike fits into all of this, potentially. The bike literally almost paved the way for the automobile and the automobile driver's license. So the bike craze, though relatively brief, did really help transform streets into corridors for travel. 
they got people very accustomed to having fast moving vehicles on public streets. Cyclists really advocated for paved roads. They pushed back against bike bans, similar to how auto advocates later used similar arguments and wanted to make sure that they could have paved roads for cars, get rid of car bans, and the bicycle license was a forerunner in some ways to the driver's license. The driver's license is in many ways an artifact too of a time when occupational licensing was all the rage. So people were licensing all sorts of professions, medical professions or barbers and even bicycles. So some cities proposed bicycle licenses in part because people were concerned about safety so people were worried, oh, okay, you have these very fast moving vehicles, they spook animals, they spook horses. And the bicycle licenses were different from occupational licenses because you were basically asking people to pay for private travel rather than a fee for a business. And that made them kind of a hot button issue. If you're biking for pleasure, you're not biking for profit, why should you pay to use streets? when pedestrians don't. On the other hand, in some ways, like with licenses now, the revenue could be used to support things that bicyclists did care about, which was improving roads. And so then when the automobile became widespread, which happened relatively quickly in the early 1900s, the end of the 20s, people also had this really major safety problem on their hands. So they also turned to what was familiar, a license, and they could justify those licenses as occupational licenses. It's addressing public health and safety. But at the same time, and this speaks to how today we also use driver's licenses for so many different things, an advantage to the driver's license was that policymakers could use it to address a number of different policy goals. So it's a pretty flexible regulatory tool. You could use licenses for professional drivers, chauffeurs, to restrict how many drivers could have one so that people thought, oh, we can address traffic congestion that way, limit how many drivers are on the road. It could generate revenue. It benefits the professional drivers who did have a license because they had less competition. There's also the safety component. So we could use license tests and eligibility requirements to keep unskilled or reckless drivers off the roads. There's also liability part. I won't dive too much into that, but it was an important way to identify people who were involved in collisions to hold them liable. Are all these more legitimate use of driver's license? It depends. So some of this comes down to, is it related to road safety or not, right? And it also reminds me of, you hear all the time, driving is a privilege and not a right. And some of that comes down to the early court history around license cases where you had fewer people driving and some of the cases that courts would rely on were not driving licenses. They were professional licenses. Even a license to sell milk, for example, could be used in some of these early court cases around license suspensions. Part of why license suspensions are so common is based in that history around courts and legislators treating driver's licenses as a privilege and not a right, which basically means in practice that we can take driver's licenses away pretty easily with fewer protections in place than if we treated them as a right. And what that then also means is that we can and have used 
license suspensions as a punishment for things increasingly removed from driving. Like not paying child support. Exactly. Just like not paying child support. And that came of age once we had the technology to enforce suspensions. So you had digitized records. We could link driver records with, for example, child support records and say the DMV can now see that someone is behind and then identify those people and notify them that their license was suspended. When a police officer can stop a driver, they can then quickly check on a digital database, whether that person has a warrant out for them or is driving on a suspended license. It just makes a license suspension more easy to enforce. And then policymakers in turn were able to use it for more things. The 90s were worried about welfare reform. How do we really make sure that people are paying their child support? Or how do we address all these broken windows crimes? So these are kind of like low level social crimes where people are worried that if we don't track down on them, if they're visible, then that could invite more serious violent crimes. They used it as a punishment for those. So that could be school truancy, could be graffiti. And these things vary by state because for the most part, driver's license policy is set by states. So you do see variation, but you can also see states copying states. And in the case of child support, that is a federal mandate. So states have to enforce it if they don't want to lose some welfare funding. There was a law in California, SB 1055. So now the Department of Motor Vehicles can no longer automatically revoke a low-income parent's non-commercial driver's license if they fall behind on their child support payments. And then you say that doesn't go far enough. Do you want to explain that? In two ways, I guess. I think the first is just that the state is still limited by that federal mandate. So there are different ways that you can kind of get around it. You can say, we're not going to do it automatically. We're not going to make it an administrative suspension as opposed to a judicial one. You could have a longer time period in which a person can be behind in child support before triggering a suspension. There are different things you can do, but it still seems like a very counterproductive policy. You're preventing someone from being able to go to work easily. I mean, our society is so auto-dominated still. And we know the literature shows that having access to a car has impacts on your employment, on income, on whether you can get around to healthcare and grocery stores. Unfortunately, because we are such a car-oriented society, it matters a lot. And it doesn't really make sense to take away someone's mobility for not having broken any traffic rules. And then you won't be able to get that driver's license back until you have caught up on your child support payments. So I think that it would be better to have reform at the federal level. And again, for all those reasons I just stated about the importance of automobility in our society is to change license suspension policies for things that are not related to traffic violations, like treating a license suspension as a debt collection tool, which is another huge way we use license suspensions. And in the same article about why we shouldn't be using a driver's license to enforce things that have nothing to do with driving, you point out that drivers who run red lights or do other violations that endanger people will likely face no punishment and that the state should better prioritize driver's license suspensions for reckless driving rather than the other things, like not paying child support. I'm sure there's pushback on any kind of driver's license suspensions because of some of the reasons you say. For road-related ones? 
Yeah. I mean, anytime people talk about speed cameras or red light cameras, somebody brings up that it's a regressive tax, it'll penalize low-income drivers. But I guess that's more about how you do it. Yes. And I do think that we need to be addressing traffic safety. It's paramount that we treat dangerous driving as the serious problem that it is. And it's interesting, the conversation around driver's license suspensions as a way to kind of punish dangerous driving, which we really do need to be treating as an incredibly tragic problem that we're facing, but we don't need to face. And I think that the conversation around road safety means that we do need to prioritize ways that we know can make our streets safer for everyone and not just people in cars. That can mean a few things. In terms of suspending someone's license, we know the kinds of punishments that actually do change behavior. So we know that keeping people from speeding in the first place, for example, or from doing it again, we know that punishments that actually change behavior are the ones that are swift and certain, more so than severe. What I mean by that is that a driver is going to be less motivated to follow the rules just because they're worried they're going to get hit by a high fine than knowing that it's very probable that they're going to get ticketed, even if it's a small ticket. So a license suspension really doesn't fit the bill of a good way to deter people from reckless driving. They are not certain punishments. Most of the time, drivers can get away, as you said, with speeding or other kinds of traffic violations. And they also happen pretty far after the fact. In contrast, a speed camera is a pretty uniform punishment. You know, okay, I sped through this intersection, the light flashed, the chances of getting a ticket in the mail is pretty high. So the next time you go past that intersection, you're probably going to be much less likely to speed through it. This is shown. Oh, yes. Yeah. Because driving is so important, people continue to do it. They'll risk it. And that makes sense because it's pretty easy to get away with breaking traffic rules and not get stopped by a police officer. The problem is with a license suspension, as soon as you get caught, at least in California, driving on a suspended license, that's a misdemeanor. And you can really face jail time and kind of escalating fines and fees. So suspensions are kind of a blunt tool to reduce collisions insofar as they do at least take some drivers off the road. But there just isn't a lot of evidence that license suspensions prevent or reduce crashes. And there are costs to suspensions, to the affected driver, to the DMV, courts, law enforcement, all of whom are spending their time in the case of non-driving related suspensions, going after people when they could be spending resources on enforcing seriously like, dangerous driving. And also kind of going back to other ways that we know do make streets safer for people. And there's the enforcement component, but there's also slowing people down with our built environment, with streets that are slow, that are narrow, that force people to slow down, that have a good mix of places to go so that people can more easily bike and walk to places. It's funny, most people's trips really aren't that far in distance, but most people, and then listeners of this show might be an exception, probably wouldn't think to walk or bike to their grocery store, even if it's a mile away, because our streets are just so unpleasant. <laughs> And you might have broken sidewalks, if there are any. It might be unshaded. You might be walking across a giant parking lot. So then, of course, driving becomes the norm and becomes cemented as the only option. But there are ways to do guerrilla street improvements. We could add speed bumps. You can add planters to make barriers, bike lanes with concrete bollards. There are definitely ways that we can put improvements in place. It can be disheartening. <laughs> Getting those improvements can feel like a Sisyphean task. It can feel like you're making a tiny step forward and then several back. But those are other ways that we can address road safety. 
And kind of the last point on this, I do think that it is depressing when historically anyway, a major way that we've addressed road safety has been by basically making driving even easier. So at the beginning of the auto era, we ceded a lot of control to the automobile. People were concerned, oh, there's too many pedestrians and other users on the roads. We should just keep streets to be corridors for travel or streets are too narrow. There are sharp corners with little visibility. So what we ended up doing was we pushed everyone off the streets. We paved them, widened them, made sure they had wide curves to maximize visibility, increase speeds, have plenty of parking. And all of those things basically meant that the automobile kind of won the fight for the street. <laughs> And we entrenched automobility more in our society. And you can see today people talking about autonomous vehicles. And you can imagine people arguing that, hey, with autonomous vehicles, you wouldn't even have to worry about suspensions. The car drives itself. And I'll add <laughs> that we are a very long way from fully autonomous personal vehicles, but we talk about them as the future. And in doing that, we kind of foreclose on other ways of getting around. And I think if we look at the history of the car, we can also view it as a hopeful note that it wasn't inevitable that the car became dominant. We decided to allow it to become so. And people really opposed it. Cars were dangerous, especially for kids. And it took concerted effort on the part of automobile proponents to transform streets and to kind of cement driver's licenses as a way that we dealt with punishment, which is very uneven and discretionary form of punishment. And we can now still make changes to make streets safer for others. And if we reduce auto dependency, if we reduce the dependency on cars, then driver's licenses won't be such a big deal to take away. Definitely. Yeah, exactly. Well, thanks for talking to us, Miriam Pinsky, author of Why Does California Revoke Licenses as Punishment for Things That Have Nothing to Do with Driving? The San Francisco Chronicle. Thank you so much for having me on. It's been a pleasure. That was Miriam Pinsky, whose recent San Francisco Chronicle op-ed was titled, Why Does California Revoke Licenses as Punishment for Things That Have Nothing to Do with Driving? Next, this is Galen Moo. Galen is the executive director of the Massachusetts Bike Coalition and host of the Cambridge Massachusetts Bike Talk. He's calling in from the vestibule of a Dunkin' Donuts. I know. Can you get more Massachusetts than this? I love what we just heard there. A quick parallel to what was coming to my mind of what's happening in Mass is that we just were able to push through legislation that would allow undocumented persons who don't have a green card or don't have immigration status to still be able to get driver's licenses, which means that they'll be able to take the test, go through the training and legally drive because we know that people are out here driving. And if they're undocumented, that means they're driving without a license, which means that they're in a crash and they can't report it and stuff like that. So I think there's some good parallels here of what's going on in San Francisco and also here in Mass about how the RMVs and the driver's licenses is a hook to talk about some of the greater societal challenges that's out there and, you know, how we have work to do. And Galen, could you take us into this next interview about Ciclavia? And then we're going to have something on Critical Mass, two open streets events from a very different approach. Oh, yeah. No, I'm so excited about this one. And this one's going to feature Tafari, who's been a, a friend of the show. And he and I have been on some other interviews together. But this is about an open streets event that gets people out to the streets where cars are banned. And so people can experience their cities. We're doing this pretty heavily in Boston. Um, we've got four Ciclovias planned for next year, maybe even more. And there's talks about making some permanent spots happen. So we're taking um, inspiration from LA and trying to transplant it here in Boston too. So it's cool to see that they're still chugging along with Ciclovia and um, hopefully we can mimic and scale that up across the country. Stay tuned. This is a great interview. 
This is Tafari Bain, Chief Strategist of Cyclovia. So we've had you on a bunch and you've explained Cyclovia, but why don't you explain Cyclovia again? Sure. Cyclovia is a nonprofit organization, but we produce, you know, an open street event, which is a event where we close down the streets to car traffic and open it up to people power transit, primary focus on bicycles, of course, but also scooters, skateboards, roller skates, people run, people people walk. It's really a space for anybody to do anything people powered. Um, we really welcome it and design the event so that all these different modes of transit can live together harmoniously in the streets, except for cars. Except the car. So it's not all inclusive of all modes of transportation. One key thing about open street events is that they do allow car traffic to cross across these events. In that way, we can keep the city working, keep businesses functioning, Keep people being able to go about their business and neighborhoods while still providing safe space for people to exist in the streets. So no cars on the exact route. But, you know, if you happen to be having to go through the area where the route is, you go down the main streets, you'll be able to find a car crossing point. So there's no hard feelings. No hard feelings, not at all. We're just trying to create some safe space. You know, when we across the country, we've designed cities primarily for cars for so long that it kind of takes these a little bit of extreme measures to really create safe space for people, you know. What would you say the message of Cyclovia is, if there is one? Getting people to slow down and enjoy their communities, um, getting to know one another, getting to know the culture in our cities, getting an opportunity to experience our cities safely, collectively, and I think deeply. When you're biking or walking down the street and you remove the cars, you remove that noise pollution, you remove that air pollution, and you kind of give people an opportunity to hear each other, to hear their spaces, to smell the businesses, smell restaurants, um, see the culture. It really transforms your relationship with your spaces. Well, I'm born and raised in Los Angeles, and every time we do an event in, in, our, in our city, I feel like I see something new and I get some new experience on streets that I grew up on. So I feel like it's a great way for cities to re-explore themselves on some levels. And you spotlight different neighborhoods. This particular one, yes, you know, we go all over the city and this particular one coming up on December 4th, um, we're gonna be in South, back in South LA, um, neighborhood I grew up in particularly. Um, we'll be starting in Expo Park. Each end connects to the Metro lines. So to get to the event, you know, you can always, you know, you can drive your car, put your bike in your car, of course, and park anywhere along the route. But we do definitely encourage you to take public transit. Obviously, the bus bus routes, you know, connect all around this route as well. So there's multiple ways, to, you know, of course, you could just bike to the event. So many people bike. We um, list some feeder rides on our website. You'll see people post about feeder rides to Cyclovia. So we got to find your own personal way to get there. And you must run into a lot of people who are having their minds open to different parts of LA and to different ways of getting around them. We see people transform their relationship with their own bodies and their own, you know, in their own mindset about how they can get around. You, you don't realize how small LA can be until you get an opportunity to bike six miles contiguously without worrying about getting run over by a car. And then you realize, oh, I could totally bike the city all the time if it was like, you know, safe for me. I, we have people who all of a sudden, you know, they weren't big bike riders prior to attending a Ciclovia to becoming, you know, doing the AIDS life cycle ride, riding from San Francisco to Los Angeles, right? Like after their experience riding the bike in a safe way in their own city. So these experiences are great ways to sort of help people think about new ways to move about their city. Metro even sees a market percentage increase in ridership, 30% I heard once during the days of our event. So these are people choosing to for, you know, for the first time, sometimes take Metro trains to get to a Cyclovia event. So, you know, it's the kind of, if you build it, they will come kind of mentality where if you create these opportunities, um, people will adopt them and, and, and make them fun, make them accessible, make sure they're, you know, promoted for folks. 
I think, you know, this is this is how you kind of transform a city. Well, L.A. has really got a lot of positive attention from Ciclovia. And to those places that don't have it yet, what would you say? Well, I mean, there's so many open street programs across the country, you know, the, um, in the Bay Area, they do this. In New York, they do this. Um, in Atlanta, they do this. Um, there's so many cities. I'm at, we, and we've worked with some cities and helped them to sort of imagine it themselves. Uh, over in Hartford, um, they're, they're doing a Hartford Streets coming up, and we, we help sort of coach them in some of their process in doing that. I'm also down in Florida. Um, there's some folks in Broward County working on an open street events, and we met with them a few times and helped them think about it. These are growing all over the place. You know, we adopted it from Bogota, Colombia, right? So it's not something we created. We we adopted it ourselves. Um, and in Bogota, Colombia, they do it every Sunday, and they close like 80 miles of streets, <laughs> some some really intense number. Um, so this is a tried and true tool. And yes, um, take our example and think about neighborhoods and streets you might want to connect and think about how you might, you know, remove those cars for a day and allow folks to really experience your city. It's, it's, it's worth it. All right. And if you're lucky enough to be in Los Angeles, you just go to www.ciclavia.org, find the next event there. Um, if you want to just show up, you just show up between 9 a.m. and 3 p.m., you'll see us. <laughs> we'll, we'll be there. All right. If you're catching this on the biketalk.org, it's probably too late. Next year, we're going to have about eight, nine events. I'm going to come back and talk about this again on Bike Talk. So we'll be around next year as well. Many, many opportunities to get engaged. That was Tafari Bain, chief strategist of Ciclavia, an officially sanctioned event. Lynn Ingram brings interviews from an unsanctioned open streets event, the Los Angeles Critical Mass. Cities around the world hold these leaderless party rides every last Friday, with some variation. In Northampton, Massachusetts, for example, Critical Mass takes place every third Thursday. Critical Mass is great. Just, it, it makes owning a bike worth it. If you want to ride your bike, like this is the best way to do it. There's the safety in numbers. You know, that bike you got in your studio apartment leaning against the wall, you know. Take it for a spin. It'll be fun. <laughs> One of the things that makes me feel like part of a community is like seeing people face to face and you can't do that in a car, like in traffic, like you're kind of in your own bubble. And it's really nice to be on a bike and seeing people that I share this city with and like people coming from all walks of life. And it's just cool to do a big ride together with people that otherwise you probably wouldn't even meet. This is my second time doing the critical mass. And the first time I had such a blast that I decided we have to keep doing it. It's about being together with a bunch of people that you don't know, meeting people and discovering places that you have never seen before. So it's pretty amazing. It's my first critical mass. So in Germany, it's quite popular. In Munich and Ingolstadt, these cities, uh, cycling in the evening, uh, fun, not uh, as a competition, being together and showing that there's another way moving through the city then with a car. It's all about the bike life community and just coming together in mass. That's all it is to me. Just positive vibes and just, you know, enjoying the night and the, and the vibes that everybody puts out. Critical mass to me is just a getaway from all the stress, just to live life, you know. That was Bike Talk. Check us out at biketalk.org and get in touch. Get on your bike, sit on the seat, put your feet on the pedals, and ride it all around, ride it all around.